Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And we're doing something a little different for this episode. It's nearing the end of 2022, so we're going to wrap it all up by talking about everything we enjoyed reading and watching and listening to throughout the year. Obviously, we have fun talking about A a Song of Ice and Fire, but, you know, we take in a ton of other stuff over the course of 2022. So this is our our Spotify wrap for the Nauticast in terms of just everything we've loved that uh, maybe came out this year or just that we experienced for the first time this year, just everything we loved in 2022. Yeah, and uh, speaking of A Song of Ice and Fire, I think I'm just going to preemptively take House of the Dragon off the table for this discussion. (laughs) Probably a good move. Uh, One of the shows I absolutely did love and would be in a top list if I was forced to make one at gunpoint, but I think everyone listening already knows how we feel about that. And also, I just don't know how to objectively rank A Song of Ice and Fire related things amongst the things that I'm not covering or tweeting about every day like it's very easy for me to uh, put better call saul versus the book of boba fett in a ranking (laughs) but where house of the dragon uh lands and all that's always kind of tricky because of our own commitment to the entire franchise of westeros and anyways we talked about it quite a bit i don't know why i'm starting by talking about it so much (laughs) (laughs) no totally and we also just know other people who are involved in it and love it and it's like the so the 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 sight and sound movie list came out recently the list they do every 10 years the magazine sight and sound where both critics and directors rank their favorite movies and uh there was a tweet going around just you know do that but for books and i was ranking my favorite books and was just i obviously i put a swath in there but i was like it's so weird to rank this next to like you know, an Edith Wharton book that I love but have read twice versus A Song of Ice and Fire that I've just gone over every chapter and talked to people about. So it's a, yeah, separate category. And that's in part why I wanted to do this episode is to just get to talk a little bit about stuff that is not George R. R. Martin related uh, for once. So uh, kicking it off, Manu, what was your what was your favorite thing that you you watched or, or read or listened to this year? What was, what was the best of 2022? Uh, I'm going to start with my favorite movie of 2022, and it is a recent uh, arrival to theaters. It is The Banshees of Innie Sharon, uh, the film by Martin McDonough, who's most famous for his movies in Bruges and Three Billboards Something of Mississippi. I didn't quite catch that one, <laughs> but his previous work in In Bruges is one of my favorite movies. It's this kind of dark comedy about some Irish hitman starring hitmen rather uh, starring Colin Farrell and Brandon Gleeson. And those two are back once again for this film, The Banshees of Eni Sharon, which is the story of two friends in a 1920s Irish town. Um, and one of the friends, Brandon Gleeson, decides he doesn't want to be friends with Colin Farrell anymore because Colin Farrell's just a bit dull. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a very silly premise, but mm-hmm. uh, as you'd kind of expect from someone who made in Bruges, the plot kind of spirals out of control and goes into a lot of unexpected places. Um, there's some great supporting performances by Barry Keoghan and Carrie Condon. And ultimately, it's a movie that's kind of about the artificial barriers we put in between ourselves that prevent us from forming community or being the truest selves, you know, with our friends, with our family, um, and just kind of those artificial impositions. It's backdropped against the Irish Civil War, which is another way to, you know, kind of make a metaphor for separating ourselves or dividing ourselves unnecessarily. Um, So it has a lot of good stuff to say, has a lot of great animals in it, um, some dogs and farm animals. Uh, Colin Farrell and Brandon Gleeson are at the top of their game. They are two of my favorite actors working in general. Um, I loved everything about this film. Um, It does go to dark places, but it'll also make you bust a gut laughing. Um, And 
it's kind of everything I want from a like non-action blockbuster film. It has like it checks every other box for me, other than you know aliens invading and things blowing up. Uh, it really did it for me. We'll just let, we'll let the the English, we'll let the the British Empire stand in for the aliens invading and blowing everything up. No, I I really look forward to this. I haven't seen it yet. I it's I I'm gonna try to get my in-laws to watch it over the holiday break because I I think this is one of those I can smuggle in past my father-in-law that's a very specific like movie decision Mm -hmm. like what's what's good that i will like that chloe will like but we can also get get the father-in-law in in on like last christmas i put on um uh bringing out the dead uh martin scorsese movie with Mm -hmm. nick cage as an ambulance driver and i know he liked it because when someone else came over he was really annoyed that they had to like stop and talk to someone else i was like that's the badge of honor right there uh so so this sounds perfect for that category because it's it's got those the, those great actors. I love I really love Colin Farrell. I've really enjoyed his kind of journey because I remember when he was just like Hollywood's resident douchebag, like that was the Colin Farrell persona. And now he's just like everyone's favorite weird like he, there was that interview that came out with him and um Jamie Lee Curtis talking about everything everywhere all at once and he like didn't understand the rock scene at all. <laughs> he's just like he's like adorable now. And that's that's been fun. I've really loved a lot of movies that he's in. So especially with your recommendation in line, I definitely look forward to it. That's really funny because he sounds like a dull person in real life, like the character he's playing in the movie. But he's kind uh, of a dope, but I think he's he's a great actor and is his uh, <laughs> watching him fall from like he used to be just the guy with like the terrible hat and the big sunglasses. And now he just like squints a lot and people gently pat him on the head. How about you? Uh, what was your favorite thing of 2022? My favorite thing I watched in 2022 was uh, Irma Vep, the series on HBO. And this is this is one of the things that comes with a metric fuck ton of backstory. So just just strap in, everyone. So there was this, but we go back to the beginning of movies, uh, silent movies in the 1910s in France. And there was the the big thing then was serial pictures. Like you'd have this series of movies, each like, you know, 40 to 45 minutes long. You'd have like 10 to 12 that you'd put in theaters one a week. And they'd have cliffhangers and, you know, extended plots and characters. It's a, a big influence on stuff like Indiana Jones and Star Wars. The kind of the, the, the cartoony text crawls and jumping between locations you see in those movies were a big part of these serials. And there was this guy called uh, Louis Fouillard, and he lived in Paris in the 1910s. And he made this serial called Les Vampires, which was, uh, unlike what the name indicates, is not actually about vampires, but about a criminal gang that calls themselves that. And they're weird little infiltrations into the police and the police's infiltrations into them. It's like The Departed if it was about people in France in the <laughs> 1910s. And it's it's really it's really great. I recommend it if people can track it down watching because it's just like the camera just holds back and you watch people like climb into chests and create little duplicates of themselves and unlock secret passages. And it's just really fun in a, in a spy uh, kind of way. And so it's the main story plot of that is is these two kind of kind of bland male protagonists slugging it out. But there's this character called Irma Vep, who is this criminal part of the vampires gang. And she's not really important for the plot, but she's so much fun. And the actress is incredible and has this great haughty attitude and moves so slinky. She's wearing this famous cat suit. And the scene that everyone loves from that serial is when she's thought dead, but then she she's actually alive and she comes into the villain's club and she just gets on stage and just starts flexing and everyone's just cheering and she's crowd surfing and it's amazing. And people just love and reference that scene a lot. All right. So that's a great silent thing from the 1910s. Fast forward to the 1990s. There's this French director named Olivier Assayas. And he's part of a, a younger generation of French filmmakers who grew up kind of on the stories of France in the 60s and France in 68 and the student riots and the revolution. And we almost defeated capitalism. You know, the, we, the American story has the hippies and this is France's equivalent of that. 
And so he was kind of raised on those stories and was politically interested in, in coming up with a way of filmmaking that addressed the, the changing times in France. So he makes a movie called Irma Vep, which is about a French filmmaker trying to remake Les Vampires and bringing over an Asian actress who is Maggie Cheung playing herself. Maggie Cheung, who's in In the Mood for Love and a lot of great Hong Kong action movies. And the movie is about like a French director trying to remake that and breaking down under his own pretension and the strain of just the influence of that and how the film industry has changed for the worse. So that, okay, so that was the 1990s. And now just this year, Olivier Assayas has come back to this story to make a, a, a limited series for HBO, which is about a character who is basically him trying to make that movie into a show. <laughs> So it's the most, it's the most, as you can see from that long ass description, I apologize, but that, that's the level of backstory going into this. Like it's this, this endless hall of mirrors and this, this, what makes the show really good on HBO is that it's about this guy trying to recapture this magic from both the silent era and his own previous movie and, and try working so hard to try to recreate that, that he kind of overlooks what would be the spark? His collaborators and the interesting ideas they're bringing to the table. And it's got a Alicia Vikander playing the main role. And she's like an actress who's like tired of doing superhero movies and wants to do something real, but isn't sure about this. And it's, it's this, it's like constantly cutting between shots from the serial from the 1910s. And then it cuts to, uh, the, the version of the show that the character is making, which deliberately looks terrible. Like it looks like it's bad Netflix lighting and really flat and ugly and not interesting. And then the kind of the real story is the behind the scenes drama of the people attempting to make this show. And it's so, yeah, this was probably my favorite thing I saw this year just because it was so it had all these layers of how to search for inspiration when you're creating art, when you're constantly carrying the past around with you. Just the like this this hollowed beloved silent movie and then the 90s movie and now this thing. And it's trying to find the soul, which is Irma Vep herself, that the characters keep saying she's like this ghost in the spirit of cinema that keeps coming back to haunt us. And Alicia Vikander puts on her, her cat suit and starts getting possessed and walking through walls. A lot of crazy shit happens. But it reminds me a lot of, um, of The Return of Twin Peaks. Because uh, that was like for David Lynch, it, it felt like that was him, him summarizing his entire career, that he was bringing every stylistic choice, every thematic touchstone he's ever explored, all within the, that framework of splitting Dale Cooper into his good and evil selves, like this is my myth. And this is the same for Olivier Asias. This is his, his farewell to movies. And of course, it naturally comes in the form of a streaming show <laughs> that helps kill off movies. But uh, so it's, it's definitely, I think, best approached if you're at least a little familiar with the silent movie and the 90s movie. I came to it as a huge fan of those and I really loved it. But it is on its own terms, just a very weird, wild, strange looking show. It's on HBO Max and I, I highly recommend Wow. Um, I did not get a chance to see this, but in your description, it almost reminds me of uh, Synecdoche, New York. Um, Just kind of a story that kind of abstracts upon itself to a ludicrous degree, but uh, kind of with a different, uh, you know, angle or viewpoint than Irma Veep, as you're describing, or Irma Vep. Um, But no, that sounds fascinating. If I had actually known that's what the show was about, I probably would have watched it. It's very weird and cool uh, in that way. But no, yeah, the the Synecdoche New York comparison is absolutely perfect. It has that Charlie Kaufman, like how many layers of detachment and scare quotes can we get (laughs) to the point where it stops being, because that kind of thing can get pretentious, but what I love about it and I love about Synecdoche New York too is it kind of just blows right through that at a certain point. It becomes genuinely emotional again because you're stuck with the people trying to wrestle all that. Kristen Stewart, who I will be talking about again later in this episode, shows up for a couple episodes at the end and is hilarious. I 
will happily admit to being a big Kristen Stewart fan. So I enjoyed that too. What else did you uh, watch or read or et cetera this year that you loved? So I'll throw in my uh, TV pick of the year, um, which was Better Call Saul, uh, which is a little bit harder to recommend just because it comes with at least five previous seasons of Better Call Saul and possibly five seasons of Breaking Bad. Um, But like, you know, you talked about Lynch returning for Twin Peaks. Um, This is Vince Gilligan's kind of return and last hurrah in the Albuquerque verse or the Heisen verse or whatever you want to call it. Um, this is a show in general that's one of my favorite television shows, has been for the last five, six years. Um, and I think it stands uh, almost completely independent of Breaking Bad. So it is a show that if you did not get through Breaking Bad or did not particularly like it, um, I wouldn't let that turn you off from this. Um, the show is kind of two-faced for most of its run. It is, on one side, a lawyer drama, drama, and that features Bob Odenkirk's titular character, Saul Goodman, um, but his actual name, which is Jimmy McGill, uh, the Saul Goodman's a persona he adapts, um, and his you know, dealings with the law, with various law offices, with his law partner and slash partner in crime of sorts, Kim Wexler, who's played by Rhea Seahorn. Um, They are a fantastic combination playing off each other. I hope both gets lots of awards. Um, And that's just one half of the story. The other half is kind of a prequel to Gus Fring's meth empire from the Breaking Bad side of things. So Jonathan Banks is back once again as Mike Ehrmantraut, Giancarlo Esposito as Gustavo Fring. And you'll see a lot of familiar faces from some of the smaller bits. Uh, And those two things have mostly remained apart for the first five or so seasons. They've kind of intersected at really important points. But this being the last season, they all just kind of ran up together and like mashed each other and people died and situations you didn't expect in terms of who would cross over with who. Um, It just really kind of blew my mind in terms of every time the story I thought was going to zig, it would zag, but it would zag in a very organic way that felt earned uh, and in line with everything that Vince Gilligan and his other showrunner Peter Gould had been laying down. Um, this show also had a bunch of breakouts on in its own right. Uh, Michael Mando uh, played this character Ignacio on the cartel side. Uh, Patrick Fabian was uh, Jimmy's boss and kind of lawyer that he hated um, on his side of things. And then Tony Dalton plays Lalo Salamanca. Um, and he was just a magnetic presence as kind of the big bad of the second half of the run of Better Call Saul. Um, so it was just a very satisfying character driven show. And that's kind of what it came back to in the end is that everything was driven by the characters. Um, I'm going to spoil Breaking Bad just a little bit here. Um, Bob Odenkirk's character, Saul Goodman, Jimmy McGill, he survives the end of Breaking Bad. So there is parts of Better Call Saul that take place before Breaking Bad. That's where most of the events happen, but then also stuff after the Breaking Bad timeline. And that's kind of where the series ended up is the last couple episodes focused on that post-Breaking Bad world. Um, And that was just really fun to return to um, as a Breaking Bad fan. But then the payoff and the climax of the show was uh, firmly situated within itself, within the story of Jim and Kimmy, uh, or Jimmy and Kim, rather. Um, and I was just head over heels with the show during its entire run. Um, but to get like a really, really satisfying final season, it might even be its best season of television. Um, 
it was just fantastic. And it's also been really snubbed at all the award shows over the last half decade. So I do hope that it gets some love because I think uh, Bob Odenkirk has revealed himself to be an incredible dramatic actor after being such a great comedic actor for so much of my career. And then basically everyone else in the cast just delivered, uh, you know, star turning performances in their roles. I still haven't caught up on the final season yet, but I've really loved everything I've watched so far with Better Call Saul. And I think, you know, that Better Call Saul versus Breaking Bad is one of the the drop of a hat internet debates now. It's like it's like Goodfellas versus Casino for a for a whole new generation. But I I do think in some ways Better Call Saul is the more consistent show, even if its highs are not quite as high as Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad had those really distinct standalone episodes that were directed by really talented people and that are really iconic even now. But Better Call Saul, it's like it's this slow accumulation of emotional weight and connection to the characters that I really enjoy. And in in a way I was thinking about it, it's like they both like they both kind of drew from the Sopranos, the, both those shows, but in different ways. Like Breaking Bad has the big moments and the stuff that people talk about. And Better Call Saul has the because the Sopranos also had very slow, patient, long-term character arcs that those writers worked on. And Better Call Saul, I think, really exemplifies that. So um, I just haven't gotten around to the final season yet, but I look forward to watching it probably in one gulp when I do. Because uh, everything I've heard about it makes me makes me so glad that they uh, you know stuck the landing on that, which is not a guarantee with any show. So good for them. Yeah, I would say this is the season where they consistently hit a couple of those high moments. Um, I think there were moments in this season that I'll remember up there with, um, say, the highest moments of Breaking Bad, like the end of season four, when someone blows up their wheelchair and we all know what happens from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else you got for me? So something that's not didn't really come out in 2022, but I've just been reading this year that I've really enjoyed are the, the three body problem books. I've just been I've been very slowly reading them. Uh, I just started the third one, the third of three, and I, I've been reading them really slowly in part just because the uh, the physics and the metaphysics involved are just really complicated. So every time a character reveals this, the next stage of their plan, I'm like, all right, I need to <laughs> I need to look up half of this paragraph, otherwise I'm going to miss why all the other characters are gasping. So, but I've also just really been just the descriptions are so beautiful that I just have I've been stopping and lingering over them. And it's different translators working on, because it's a Chinese series of books, and it's different translators on the first book versus the second and third, which has also been an interesting part of reading them as, as the the language gets a lot more flowery in the second and third books. I'm like, I bet this is partially the translator amp- amping this stuff up. And it's they're, they're incredible books. I think uh, anyone who is into A Song of Ice and Fire or something like The Expanse would definitely be really into them if you haven't tried them. It's hard to sum them up because the plot is really ambitious. It covers just like, it's like centuries of time, especially in the second one, is constantly jumping forward in time. There's multiple species involved. There's all these different political factions and character arcs and just new societies keep springing up because in the second one, people are constantly coming out of hibernation like hundreds of years after they last were and being like, all right, what's who's in charge of society now? How are we doing? Uh, the overall storyline is basically it's about an alien invasion of Earth, but it's mostly most of the story is about the the build up to that invasion because the, they're coming from Alpha Centauri, which is still a long way away. So the trip is hundreds of years and humanity gradually realizes it's happening. Like the first book is humanity gradually realizing, oh, we're about to come under invasion by an alien race, aren't we? And then the second one is just what that knowledge does to humanity in ways that are some ways are really good and some ways are really terrible and you have this great so the first book 
kind of grounds it all. It starts with the Cultural Revolution in China. It starts in the Chairman Mao era and gives you this real strong sense of Chinese history and politics and what it was like for for scientists to negotiate this very intense, rigorous political environment where you have to kind of stick to, stick to the plan and stick to the 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 story. And anything you say deviant to that, even if you can back it up science-wise, can be treated as heresy. And just the the ways that the Cultural Revolution kind of clamped down on scientists, but also for very, very smart ones, kind of opened up some uh, some power vacuums and gaps they could take advantage of. And that they kind of stumble into a scientific discovery of this alien race. And the people with their different political factions are like, I can use it for this, I can use it for that. And one of them uses like the, the sun as a radio. And it's just, it's all this like slow accumulation of drama and revelation from characters who are very existential and given to witty monologues about the meaning of existence and the meaning of science given this and a bunch of them kill themselves. And it's, it's not, it's not exciting, but it is, it is constantly beautiful in really new ways. And the, the prose keeps changing and the characters keep coming up with, with new revelatory master plans. And there's an incredible sequence where this guy like, does like a Pygmalion and brings his fantasy girl to life and they go to the Louvre and they're looking at the Mona Lisa and they like they stare at each other and then he imagines like the whole building melting and then they go into the center of the earth and explode into like a, a shard of ice and it's just like I was just like half asleep reading and then my eyes just opened up so it's I really I really recommend it not just to anyone who's fan a fan of ambitious science fiction because it very much is that but also just anyone who likes those just gorgeous, dreamy prose and natural descriptions. I haven't finished it yet. I'm just started the third book, but I'm really loving it. Well, you are the learned one here. I have not uh, read that book or many books this year. Um, I actually did just get my library card again a couple of weeks ago. I had Hell not yeah. used it for 10 years. Um, I'm currently working through various history books because that's of interest to me. Uh, but since we're deviating away from the movie and television for a moment, I just want to throw in my favorite video game of this year was Elden Ring, which is a George R.R. R. Martin involved video game of all things. Um, Elden Ring is a fantasy world that's separate from anything else that Martin has done. Um, and it's a game made by FromSoft, who are most famous for the Dark Souls games or Bloodborne or Sekiro. Um, these are kind of combat-heavy RPG element-driven stories um, that are kind of built on being somewhat frustrating, or at least uh, they're not meant to be easy games. You're supposed to kind of like labor away at it until you kind of get good enough to uh, beat them. Uh, but uh, the people at FromSoft brought in George R. R. Martin to kind of give them some world building. It's like kind of lay out the world and uh, we'll do the rest. We'll create the game from there. And uh, the FromSoft people, the games they've made over the years have been great, very like polished and refined. And all of that comes through like more so here than any previous game. Um, it's very open-ended. I think the most similar comparison would be Breath of the Wild, The Legend of Zelda, where you kind of are just given weapons and character and just said go do things and the things that you're going to do are probably die die a whole lot um basically everything in the world can kill you whether you're a seasoned uh player or new to it um but it's built to be very 
friendly to newcomers to the genre to this type of game um there's ways to get online support in terms of playing along with your friends so you're working together or just kind of ai to help you along it's a sprawling fantasy world there's a lot of great stuff there's a lot of great dragons um a lot of great beasts to fight um you have your own little mystical llama horse that you can ride everywhere um i kind of don't want to give away the plot partially because i really can't um because it is it's a game where the story often exists in the margins of the game. So if you like look at an item in your menu, you will find like some backstory about the sword you're wielding or about the scroll you picked up. But there isn't somewhere who's just going to sit you down a third of the way through the game and tell you, this is your mission. And if you don't save the princess, then Ganon's going to rule Hyrule. There's none of that <laughs> stuff. Um, and the story is constantly twisting and turning. Um, you can choose your path like you can murder npcs if you choose to you can just talk to them and help them you know do their fetch quests or whatever side missions they have you doing there's a lot of freedom in the game so you do really get to pave your own story and there's several endings that you know you can get depending on how you play the game um it was exhilarating it was also very exhilarating in a communal sense because it was kind of the hot game that everyone was talking about um i think i started at least three individual group chats just about this game um just different groups of people who want to share tips or hey i'm stuck on this dragon do you have any ideas um i don't know how to distribute my stats yada yada um it's probably going to win every game of the year award uh, that exists in the real world. Um, but for the not a cast game of the year award, I think it's a, it's a runaway, at least on this end of things. I haven't played it myself, but I, I, even so I picked up on the phenomenon when it was happening and cresting and everyone loving to talk about it, which is just great to witness. And I, I love everything I've read about the more kind of immersive and open-ended qualities of it. The breath of the wild comparison definitely make, makes me want to play it. Cause I've, I sunk an embarrassing amount of hours into that. So yeah, I'm glad it's it's winning awards and I'm glad it's just um I'm glad everyone was able to get together around it. That was just a wonderful thing. So uh haven't mentioned a movie yet myself. My favorite movie of the year uh was probably RRR, which I didn't get to see in theaters. I'm kicking myself for that, but I enjoyed it on my uh my projector at home via Netflix several times and it's uh you know, people have uh have already explained at length what makes it pretty great. I think it it speaks for itself well. It's just this the glorious spectacle, and as many people have said, it's it, a lot of American blockbuster movies just uh, are are just pale in comparison. It makes it makes the the deficiency there pretty strong, and it's one of those movies where I just I can't even pick a favorite scene because they're kind of all tied for first. There's the the early solo fight that one of the main characters has against the protesters, where he takes out a whole crowd just to deliver one guy to his colonial boss. You have the scene where the two main characters meet, where they're rescuing the kids surrounded by the oil fire, and they're meeting, they're, you know, jumping over the bridge with the bike and meeting in the middle with the flag. And then you have, of course, the, the great wedding dance scene where they show up the snooty guys dancing their European dances. And then you have just like the, the, the entire last hour, which is just action upon action exploding. And it's just, it's just one of those where maximum style is packed into everything, just that there's nothing incidental. All the camera work is, is like, you know, swooping and drawing attention to everything. And you get this great choreography. Uh, you have this, these perfect uh, opposing lead characters that, you know, one is, is kind of more stern and keeping himself under wraps and is working for the colonial government and the other one isn't. 
and it's uh, one's trying to hijack basically the colonial infrastructure from within and the other one is working with local culture on the outside and they both kind of come together needing what the other one has uh, it's got a great soundtrack that was my that was topping my spotify rep for the year was a couple songs off the soundtrack because it was just great for for exercising or for shopping or for anything i was doing and you know my my taste in movies tends towards the more the the weirder and obscure shit but i i love a fireworks factory when they're actually fun when they're not just noise and 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 that's what this is so this is Definitely my favorite movie of the year and definitely also my favorite most watched movie of the year because I, I came back to this again and again. Yeah, my taste ten, tends towards Fireworks Factory and this was it for me. This was definitely in my top three of the movies and um, I kind of just get excited when I see my co-hosts have this as their favorite movie. I'm like, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you talk about it. That's great. I love it. Um, I've grown up with some degree of Bollywood uh, in my life, uh, you know, just because I am South Asian. And this is technically a Tollywood film. It's from a different region, but still kind of comes out of the same industrial production machine. Um, and it's kind of great seeing this movie get a lot of love um, in Western audiences to see a lot of my friends watching it, whether it's on Netflix or going to a theater to see it. Um, SS Rajamuli, the director, just did a speaking tour in the U.S. Um, I did not get to see him in Chicago, but he did come to the local indie theater here. Um, they screened the movie and then he had a Q&A. And um, by all accounts, he's a very delightful man. Um, I think it's fantastic. I think my letterbox review is why can't my Captain America movies be like this? <laughs> um, it could easily be Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes doing half the shit that they do in this. Um, it's just it's just a really fantastic movie. Um, it's kind of how I it's a great anecdote to just like the sludge of kind of Hollywood blockbusters right now or just kind of the standard content churn. Um, it is an action blockbuster, but it's made very lovingly, um, and it's made with spectacle in mind. Um, you mentioned the dancing in the middle of the wedding. I think that's one of my favorites because as someone who's grown up with Bollywood in my background, but into action movies, seeing that kind of perfect blend of dance into this action film uh, just kind of really made my heart flutter in a way that you know action movies don't often make my heart flutter. I think it's a fantastic movie, and it's pretty much at the top of my list, too. Um, it's inventive, it's creative, it's visually stunning, um, and it's a movie that just understands to just go for it. Like, don't think too hard and just let it fly, and everything in this movie somehow works. What is uh, What else is on your movie list for the year? You said this might be in the top three. What else is, what else is up there? Honestly, kind of kills me to have a comic book movie in my top three this year, just because I was mighty satisfied with uh, Avengers Endgame, and I'm like, I'm done. And pretty much everything after Avengers Endgame has solidified that opinion that I'm really not as into uh, these car comic stories and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as I was maybe 10 years ago. But sadly, the Batman got me. I'm sorry. I didn't see him coming. It was dark out. It was raining. <laughs> That's how I he gets into it. <laughs> he stepped into an alley. But um, to me, it was, first of all, an audiovisual assault. Um, and it was help that I actually went and saw this in theaters a couple times. Um, I think if I was sitting at home and had distractions, I might not have gotten into it as much. But um, being able to subverse myself or situate myself in that movie theater, sit down and be washed over by the soundtrack by Michael Giacchino. Um, I think just the sound editing and sound mixing was really good, at least in the theatrical cut. I know HBO Max has issues with that. Um, it kind of remind me of, and I'm going to mention some hallowed movies here, uh, Blade Runner or 2001. Kind of movies where you just kind of want to sit back and just watch what's happening, even if it's just someone moving slowly across screen or 
you know, just kind of mood setting, just like these streets of Gotham with little pans and cuts and zoom ins. Uh, it just, it makes you just kind of want to experience it. And not a lot of movies, especially a lot of blockbuster movies and comic book movies of late, haven't really been that good to look at or that good to listen to. I'm mostly there because I'm a captured audience. Um, and despite the kind of outward presentation it has of being that murky, dark and gritty Snyderverse or Nolanverse style story, it actually does use color quite a bit. In fact, it's one of the best representations of like comic Batman I've seen on film um, because Batman in the comics does a great job of using like black space and empty space on the page. Um, and this movie uses shadows and black space and just, you know, it kind of cuts off the entire frame so you can focus in on small parts of it. It's very smart where how it uses its color. It's a lot of it comes from its lighting, like police sirens, the blue and red really pop in this movie. They use gunfire as lighting as well. Um, there's a scene where Batman's walking down the hallway, and the only time you see anything is when one of the machine guns is firing. So it just creates a very great visual it's just a great visual experience, and it's also the best use of the volume, which is one of the most recent kind of VFX uh, backdrop technologies that's been used, um, kind of the air to the green screen or the blue screen that's been used for the last 20 years. Um, and they used it to, I think, the best effect I've seen it anywhere. They used it for skyline shots, kind of where the bat signal is, so you can see the backdrop of Gotham behind Catwoman and Batman. But then specifically, they used it for this car chase scene with the penguin that has rain, that has other cars. Um, and that the fact that they were able to do this without shooting on a road, and you can see that behind the scenes, there's an HBO special feature on it. Um, it's probably the best use of the technology to do something that would be impractical to do in terms of you know i kind of wish every movie built a highway like the matrix reloaded and like flipped over 2000 cars but um in terms of budget and trying to make it work this was really great uh the cast is great up and down i think uh battinson very very good excited to see more of him as bruce wayne colin farrell the second time we're mentioning him this episode uh he's fucking great as the penguin um I have, you know, some kind of iffy thoughts about putting him in a fat suit, but otherwise, like, he just kind of knocks it out of the park. Uh, Zoe Kravitz is super hot. She's super great, but let me tell you, she is super hot in this. And then it was also great to see Andy Serkis as himself, um, which is also not the only time he does that this year, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, one of the things I really liked about this movie, it's a very small thing, but it's something that just is going to stick with me forever is there is a kid in this movie. Um, it is the mayor's kid. Although when you first meet him, you might think this might be a young Bruce Wayne because he's dressed up as a ninja or Zorro playing with the sword. That's a classic young Bruce Wayne motif, but this kid, he has no lines of dialogue and he shows up three times in the movie, but he's used emphatically to kind of like punctuate the point of why Batman is doing the things he's doing. And then the kid becomes a symbol for a Gotham that's worth saving. I think a lot of the problem with kind of the Nolan verse and a little bit with the Snyder movies, even though we don't really go to Gotham like fully in any of those is like Gotham's kind of there and you don't get a sense that these are people worth saving. Cause when you see them, they're mostly just angry at the Batman or something like that. So it doesn't create like an entire city of people who have feelings, who have desires or passions. And it's like, I don't want bad things to happen to them. And I think Matt Reeves's Batman movie creates a Gotham that I feel is worth saving. And then that becomes very key to the overall thrust of the movie and its climax. I have, I admit I have yet to see it. 
I it's uh it's it's a long one. I know it's three hours long, so I got to plot out a couple of nights to watch it properly. And also, like you, I'm kind of burnt out on a lot of superhero movies. I think in terms of anything coming up, I'll I'll probably go out to the theaters for the Spider Verse sequel. But I think that's pretty much it. But I am I am excited when everyone when anyone describes this one in terms of the style because it sounds right up my alley when you're comparing it to Blade Runner or 2001. I've also heard it compared to David Fincher a lot, which makes me very excited because I always thought he his style made perfect sense for this kind of universe because David Fincher always has that very kind of washed out, gray but not boring looking, but just kind of like deliberately ugly looking style that I think suits this kind of universe. And I'm a big Robert Pattinson fan. I've liked pretty much every every weird move he's made since the Twilight years has has paid off for me. So I, I always I thought it was perfect for this role just from what I hear about it. And there's you know, I like I like I like sinking slowly into grime and it seems like that kind of movie where I can just I can just dwell as it as it corrupts my soul. What could be better than that? In terms of uh, other movies I saw, RR was my favorite, but in terms of my favorite uh, American movie of the year, that was probably Nope, Jordan Peele's Nope. Uh, I loved all three of his the three of his movies he's made, but this was this was probably my favorite. I'd have to sit with it. Um, I'd have to watch it again. I'm definitely going to watch it again. I knew that right away, and I, I love that. I love that feeling of, of starting a new movie and it, like just a few minutes and going, uh-oh, the people who made this are smarter than me, and <laughs> they're doing things I can tell I'm not picking up on. I'm going to be watching this over and over again, aren't I? And there's just, there's so much going on in, in Nope. In terms of plot and character, it moves very quickly, so there's a lot to keep up with, but just the, the imagery and the, the different kind of influences and the, and the themes and how it keeps changing, like just as, like it's one of those movies where like every 10 minutes there's a new way of thinking about what it's about and you're keeping up with it. And so I know coming back to it, I'll have a new, a whole new perspective on it. And it, that kind of it reminded me in that way a lot of of Edgar Wright's movies in terms of the in- intricacy of the writing, which with Edgar Wright sometimes it just gets overwritten. But there's I love that that very like every line of dialogue has this very specific purpose, and there's this very self-contained kind of structure to the movie with its own internal logic, and you're just the move kind of watching the movie is just kind of solving the internal logic of what exactly it's about. And it reminded me a lot specifically of uh, The World's End, which is is my favorite Edgar Wright movie. It doesn't get a lot of love. It's in the, the Cornetto trilogy with uh, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. And I think one of the reasons that th- uh, those two get more attention is it's it's clear what genre they're riffing on. Like Shaun of the Dead, it's riffing on zombie movies. Hot Fuzz is riffing on, riffing on cop movies. And The World's End is like it's there's like a half dozen different genres going on. And they all kind of change and merge into each other. And it's it's ultimately, it's just it's just about itself. It's this really original script that I love. And the same thing goes for Nope. Like, it's I don't want to spoil it because I walked into it mostly unspoiled and really enjoyed it on that basis. It's really scary. It's really funny. It's really tightly constructed plot-wise. But that's what I love about it is, is there's many different layers to what's going on in terms of movie history and how pop culture works and how America's history with race plays into that. And uh, it incorporates westerns and sci-fi, so it's just it's a a really smart movie written by someone who really loves movies. And when that that can be that can in the wrong hands that can not work, but when it when it works, I love it. And so that that was the case here. Uh, I have not seen Nope, uh, but it's definitely high on my list. I'll probably rent it or stream it as soon as it's available. I think it's out to rent. I will stream it when it's free to watch. I think it's um, on HBO or it's maybe it's on Peacock if you have that, but it's on something that I watched and I forget off the top of my head. But yeah, it'll come to everything eventually. It is definitely. And The World's End is actually my favorite Edgar Wright movie as well. A man of taste and sophistication. <laughs> 
Uh, and that's, you know, pretty rough because uh, Hot Fuzz, the movies it's riffing on are some of my favorites, those kind of like 90s action cop thrillers. So. Hot Fuzz is perfect too, but The World's End has this very unique, weird quality to the story that I really love. And same, so like same thing with Jordan Peele, where like Get Out is his Shaun of the Dead, where it's, that's the most popular one, I think, in part because it's, everyone can pick up what it's about really quickly. Get Out is about race and does not make that unclear at any point. But Nope is like, it, it's constantly shifting the focus. And so I think that's less of a crossover, but I find it, I find it really enjoyable. So another movie I really liked, and I wouldn't say it's like one of my two or three favorite movies of the year, but it is the one I maybe have rewatched the most. And that is Prey, which is uh, set in the Predator universe. Um, I don't have any real fondness for the franchise beyond the first two. I think the first Predator is a Stone Cold classic. Uh, John McTiernan's uh, great opus, as you recently said, it's your your favorite movie of his. That movie is also foundational to the video games I love the most, Metal Gear Solid. And then Predator 2 is just kind of fun. (laughs) I like it. I don't think it's as good as the first one, but Danny Glover does yeoman's work, and it's just kind of enjoyable for what it is. I have not seen any Predator movie that has come out since Predator 2 till Prey, and that sadly includes The Predator by Shane Black, a director I really like, but I just heard that movie wasn't good, and I just decided to spare myself. You made the right decision. But That's all I'll pre- say. <laughs> it I, I, seems like I did. Uh, but Prey uh, is kind of a fun survival action movie. Um, it is very much focused on its lead character, played by Amber Midthunder. Um, she plays a Comanche Indian, I believe. And basically, a predator has come to the area surrounding her tribe. Um, this is 1700s, I would say. Um, there, We don't see a lot of English colonials. There are French trappers involved in the story. And through that, there are themes of colonialism in terms of who is predator, who is prey. Um, and we see that despite whatever the alien predator is doing out in these lands, it is the French trappers that are murdering the buffalo and leaving a wasteland of corpses. Um But in general, it's just a really cool action movie. It is fun. It is very character-driven. The set pieces are small, but all very rewarding. There's a lot of great callbacks to previous things in the Predator uh, franchise, specifically the first two. Uh, And it... I just had a great time. It's just about 90 minutes on Hulu. Um, It doesn't ask a lot of you, and you get a lot out of it. Um, I I just thought it kind of ruled. It kind of kicked ass. If you're into just some brutal, visceral fun... It's perfect for that. Yeah, I mean, it, you're hitting all the notes of of what I love about movies on this scale is the the short runtime and the focused ambitions, and it it never sprawling beyond its borders. And that's that's something of a lost art that I think has to do with the kind of the death of the mid budget movie, which is something people a lot more knowledgeable than me have written about. But there is something lost, I think in terms of uh, the art of making a movie like this where it's, it doesn't it's not it doesn't have to be financed and and become the tent pole for someone with 500 million dollars to burn but it has just enough to you know make its world feel lived in and yeah I'm a huge fan of the original predator I think the the idea of it is still so weird and cool <laughs> that you have you have the most silly macho over the top muscle men action heroes and then they just get destroyed by a slasher <laughs> villain who is who is comically overpowered compared to them and there is there is a uh, as many again many people smarter than me have written about there are there are the kind of colonial echoes to that and the echoes of the vietnam war involved in that and 
something I was always frustrated about with the Predator franchise. And like you, I didn't, I, I watched the Shane Black one and that was it in terms of past Predator 2. Something I was always frustrated with. I, was, I thought that dynamic is so interesting and you could recreate that in other settings and other environments if you pay attention to what the dynamics of that new environment would be. And this is a great example of that. And I think I, you know, I would just, I would love to see just drop a predator into any, any, any other timeline, drop a predator into like, you know, the Russian revolution and see what happens. I don't know, write a script. Mm -hmm. How would, how would that dynamic work with a predator suddenly involved? It can be inherently interesting in a way that like, you know, having another Jaws show up for Jaws sequels was never interesting. But Predator, I think if you do it right, can be interesting in other contexts. So I really, I really liked Prey too. In terms of yeah, other movies I love this year, I was really into Crimes of the Future, which is not surprising at all for anyone who knows me. <laughs> Big fan of David Cronenberg. He's one of my favorite directors. I think he, more than almost anyone, combines really highfalutin philosophical ideas with just really visceral, gross-out movie gore. Like he he has fused those together in just a, a genius way over and over again. And it's been a while since he got a movie released because, again, he's one of those mid-budget guys. None of his movies reached two hours. Most of them are just like a few people talking in a room. And then he spends the money on, on the gags and the gore. So he's had trouble raising a budget. This is his first movie in a while. And it's uh, Crimes of the Future is also a name of a short feature Cronenberg made earlier in his career in the 70s. Uh, not one of his best. It's not really widely available, but he brought back the name, which I think is great. It's a full circle thing. Again, like I was saying about Irma Vep, it's the, I think this is Cronenberg trying to sum up his entire career just in case he doesn't get to make another movie again. And it's that, that great, great mix of, of body horror and rhetoric. Like every other scene in Crimes of the Future is someone doing something gross. And then the next scene is someone explaining how that something gross fits into like the cosmic view of the universe that these characters are obsessed with. And uh, typically with Cronenberg, you get some political paranoia thrown in as well. There's always some shady government agent manipulating things behind the scenes or some scientist who's got some weird contract. And so the, so the premise of the movie is that it's the near future and human beings are uh, rapidly mutating. And sometimes they're doing it deliberately and sometimes it's not. Sometimes just organs are just randomly growing in, in, in people's bodies. And yeah, Viggo Mortensen, the main character, playing the main character, he's on the not deliberately side that he just has organs growing inside him, random extraneous organs. And he and his his partner, played by uh, Leah Seydoux, they are, they what they do for a living is they remove those organs publicly for like paying audiences, like almost like street performance, but it's, but like an autopsy. Like we're going to show you this, this wild new organ that our, our, his body created and then we're going to remove it. And I just, I love that. As a premise, was just such a wild concept that no one but David Cronenberg would come up with, that, that you're going to fuse surgery with performance art. And the movie only gets weirder from there. Like, they, they start constantly connecting it to sex, just like all the orifices and penetration. And uh, Kristen Stewart shows up, amazing performance. I was talking about her earlier, and she's incredible in this. Just, like, it's the funny thing about Kristen Stewart, like, that she... She was a superstar in this big, you know, young adult franchise, and you could imagine the career that would typically result from that. But that didn't happen with her because she herself is just this weird, feral, squirrely. <laughs> like she just looks like she wants to bite you. And her, I think her best performances are the ones that take advantage of that. And that is this to to the to the core. She's just like so nervous and anxious, but also hero worshiping Viggo Mortensen, and she just. 
I mean, like, you know, the way it's written, it's like it's like she's trying to seduce him. But the way it plays out, it looks like she just wants to eat him. And she has this line of, uh, surgery is the new sex, which is the most David Cronenberg line you can possibly imagine. And she just, she sells it wonderfully. And so the story is basically Viggo Mortensen's character trying to, um, have some kind of control, some kind of integrity about the organs his body is creating. Cause there's, there's this new rebellious movement of people who are changing their bodies on purpose and they're able to eat plastic. And then he's also a spy for the government who wants to take down those folks. And that, so the movie starts with this, this kid and his mom, and they're living alone, and the kid starts eating plastic. And the mom's response to that is to smother her child to death because she's convinced that that the child's dad, who is part of this kind of new human race of plastic eaters, has has poisoned and tainted this child irreparably and made him into this inhuman thing. And later on, she shows up and she just has like no regret or remorse about murdering her child because he's a mutant now. He's not a human. And then, like, the plot comes around to them. The main character is doing an autopsy on the kid. And just Leia Seydoux is just crying as she talks about that he didn't he didn't get to decide what this change meant. That it was decided for him by the adults in his life. And, like, that's the most Cronenberg idea is that change is something that you should be able to control for yourself and shouldn't be done to you. And that's his, that's his big idea. That, like, there's a great line in, in The Fly, his movie The Fly, where Jeff Goldblum is turning into, you know, The Fly. And he says at one point, like, I've figured, I've figured out what the disease wants. It wants to change me into something else. And that's not so bad, is it? And, like, that's, that's something that Cronenberg comes back to again and again. It's, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful idea. It's many of his movies work as trans narratives, including this one, as people have written about. And it's, you have to be in on his wavelength, I think, to enjoy a movie like this, because it's just very weird and flat, and the humor is very dry. But I, I loved it. It was like catnip to me. Yeah, sorry, can't say I saw this one. Uh, Cronenberg is someone I respect, but as someone who doesn't do horror and body <laughs> horror specifically being one of the specific horrors that is hard for me to watch, uh, he's just someone I haven't been able to watch. I have seen The Fly, um, and I do still need to see History of Violence. That's a um, great one, which I think you would like, because that's less body horror, and that's more like the, the character's internal motivations mm-hmm. and disturbances. And Vigo was great in that, so yeah, highly recommend that one. Yeah, but everything I've heard about Crimes of the Future is incredible. Um, everyone I know who's written about it has written so eloquently about it. Um, and as you just went over, it sounds like sounds like a keeper, but I'd expect nothing less from our body horror expert, right? <laughs> yeah, he's and as far as body horror goes, Cronenberg is like is like the standard. The stuff he did in Scanners and Videodrome and stuff that really that really set the mark. So it's it's great to see him come back to it at, at least at least one last time. So kind of like I lamented, including a superhero movie in my favorite movies, I kind of hate having a Tom Cruise movie in there, but (laughs) God damn it. Top Gun Maverick was just really good. Um, It was probably the best blockbuster fun out of Hollywood this year, which is my caveat to not include RRR in competition with it. Um, But the story itself, I think, is much more satisfying than the first Top Gun, which kind of has a story, um, but kind of not really. It's kind of just about the characters. Um, This one kind of has a more concrete plot. There's like an actual thing that the characters need to do. They have to build a team. It's very kind of Ocean's Eleven in that way. You have to find certain specialists for certain 
parts of this mission and then the like mission that they're planning kind of works as a death star run from the original star wars movie a new hope um so it's not anything that's very challenging or complicated um obviously anything dealing with the u.s military is going to have some political implications but they do a great job of just like sidestepping all of that we are just in conflict with other country and we are fighting (laughs) other guys and like in terms of race, in terms of geography, in terms of anything, they just try to nothing about it. It's just about the pilots here with Tom Cruise and the team he's assembled. Um, the cast feels so lived in in a way that kind of blows my mind because there are a bunch of established actors showing up in this, actors who were famous back in the 80s and 90s. And I had to rack my brain on were they in the first one or is this just really competent writing and world building where you can slip in, say, an Ed Harris who shows up in the first scene of the movie and you're like, wait, was he in the first one? Because he really could have been and it would have <laughs> totally made sense. Um, but so they have a couple of people like that. Um, they do some just death-defying stunt work in terms of the planes. Um, they get Tom Cruise into this experimental NASA plane. That's the one plane he wasn't allowed to fly, um, but they actually put him in there to you know, go to 10 Gs or whatever. I'm not an aerospace engineer. I don't really know the science of this all. Um, but the stunt work is very satisfying. Knowing that they actually got up in those planes and did most of that stuff is really kind of what makes it. And that it's just very competently shot so you understand everything that's going on i think christopher mccrory who's doing the mission impossible movies now uh he directed this one as well so him and tom are boys so they kind of have a really good working chemistry with each other it is just very satisfying in a way that like if i want something to watch when i'm hung over top gun maverick is going to enter that rotation because i can turn the brain off, but still get everything I love out of movies, out of this movie, because it's loud, it's big, it it depicts something that I could barely even imagine with my own mind. So um, in terms of blockbusters, I think Top Gun Maverick ran away with it for me this year. I am ashamed to say I haven't seen it yet because I know I'm going to love it. Um, I have a fascination with Tom Cruise, specifically because I genuinely think he's going to kill himself making a movie mm-hmm. at some point. And that's going to be a wild thing to witness. <laughs> and the and I, yeah, I really I really enjoy the Mission Impossible movies because they are so competently made and are about absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that's like there was a certain mood, exactly like you said, where that's that's the recipe where you you like any subtext is just going to pass over my brain. I just want meaty, perfect text of just what's the thing, what's the goal, how are you going to? And like when I watch blockbuster movies, I want to go. I don't understand how you did that. And I want to understand, like that was, it was the, um, the uh, great Steven Soderbergh quote about Fury Road, where he said, I don't understand how they're not still making it. And I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. And <laughs> that's what I want from blockbusters. And it sounds like very much in that wheelhouse. So at some point I will get around to it and I know I will love it. In terms of uh, more TV shows I love this year, I really enjoyed Severance. I was uh, skeptical about it when I heard about it because it was on Apple and like, you know, Apple TV, that automatically gets a, a raised eyebrow from me in terms of quality. I don't associate it with many great things. And it's also just not marketed very well. Like there's that Isaac Asimov series, the Foundation series, which I haven't watched yet because I don't think about it because no one talks about it because Apple TV is terrible at advertising. <laughs> um, so I was skeptical about this because of that and because the the marketing made it just look like aggressively twee, like it's it's people in a wacky office scenario, you know, cubicles. And I'm like, I don't need to watch another one of those. But I put it on, I gave it a shot, and as soon as it started, I was like, oh, this is horror. Oh, I'm entirely on board now. 
And it's it's a great, great tone mix. If it's got like the, the sitcom, like, you know, the gentle sitcom, like The Office, and then it mixes that with like a horrible paranoia and just dystopian sci-fi. It's a great little premise because it goes along, you go, okay, so it's, this is like The Office if The Office actually reflected what office work is turning into in the 21st century. And that's just, that's a genius idea. And it's a really, so it's built around, uh, if you haven't watched it, around people who work in a what is a standard office except that they have made this deal where when they enter the office they are functionally a new person a new perspective a new identity a new version of themselves who only exists in the office and when they leave it's the other person again so like you would walk into the office at 9 a.m you would from your perspective pass out and wake up at five having your other self having done a day's work and it, it, you know, the people inside start to try to understand how this works, understand their identity and try to escape. And it's a, it reminds me a lot of Lost, but it has, it has a really engaging mystery without slipping into full J.J. Abrams mystery box territory. It's, it's always really stays rooted in the performances. It stays rooted in the characters, what they're trying to figure out, what they're willing to figure out, what they kind of want to be left a mystery. Adam Scott, a lot of people have praised his performance in this one already. And he's, he does a great job of like, it's a subtle difference between his two selves, the outside self and the office self, but they are distinctly different people. And he conveys that really effectively through just his facial expressions and his just like one is more sarcastic and rolls his eyes a lot and the other is very earnest and always makes eye contact. Um, the highlight for me, though, is the in terms of performances is uh, John Turturro, who I love, is in it. Uh, Christopher Walken is in it. And uh, their characters have this kind of meet cute older older fellow romance go on in it that's very tender and sweet but then it ends up devastating in terms of where it goes and uh, I won't spoil it but in terms of the finale the end of the season is one of the most satisfying cliffhangers for a season ending I've seen in a while so I was I was initially skeptical of this one but it, it won me over and I, I I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next yeah, no, that sounds great. I still am not sure Apple TV is real or Apple <laughs> Plus is real. I may be making uh, it up. But enough people talk about Severance and Ted Lasso that it probably is, so I'll give it that much. But everything I've heard about it sounds great. Um, a lot of people specifically recommended this one to me, um, and I just don't have Apple TV or don't care to start my year-free trial as of yet. Um, but it is definitely something that's on the list. And I think John Turturro showing up in it is something that kind of grabs me because he is one of those low-key favorite actors that I just never remember to mention when people ask who's your favorite actor. Um, he showed up in the Batman as well this year. So he had a nice little successful year as someone I mostly know from Coen Brothers movies, but uh, good to see him branching out a bit. Uh, the last like movie, and this is probably like my third favorite movie of the year, is The Northman, uh, the Robert Eggers film from April. Um, I'm not going to go too on too long on this one because uh, me and Emily over at my brother, my captain, my podcast did an entire episode on this out in April. So if you are interested, you can get our full thoughts there. Um, but it was working with two ingredients that I love, um, Hamlet and Norse mythology. Um, as you may have picked up with all my Odin speech during our Barrack chapter a couple weeks ago, um, I know my Norse mythology pretty well. Um, so like kind of all the proper nouns and all the stuff that's kind of just meant there for color and background. Like I know instantly what they're referring to within the movie. And then it's broadly based on the story of Amleth which is kind of the basis for Hamlet, uh, which is not just my favorite Shakespeare play, but possibly my favorite narrative story, period. Hot take. I love Hamlet. I know that's uh, 
out there uh, opinion to have. But uh, it's a perfect uh, melding of those two stories. Um, it's also just brutal and violent and visceral. And I always kind of have a space for that in my cinema going heart is to see things that are brutal. Um, despite not liking horror, body horror, I love war movies. I love like extremely violent action movies, whether it's cartoony or very real. And this one's very real. Um, but it's also kind of cerebral where you're kind of questioning what's happening at various moments. Um, it reminds me a lot of the Green Knight uh, in that regards, where is this a dream? Is this something he's experiencing? What's actually going on? Um, and it has something, I think, pretty meaningful to say about revenge. Um, I think um, kind of in the mold of superhero storytelling a lot of like blockbuster stuff is generally wish fulfillment storytelling where it just like something bad happens to you and you get your revenge or you get your justice or however you want to frame it and this is way more uh focused on how that just leads to violence and violence and people start hurting and people start dying that don't need to hurt and don't need to die and that's obviously core to shakespeare's hamlet as well as this you know one son's hysterics end up leading to a whole bunch of people dying and then Fortinbras walks in and is like what the hell is this it's just it's a graveyard here people um so i i really liked its thoughts on uh revenge what it was trying to say about our perceptions of justice and violent justice specifically um it feels very of a piece with metal gear solid 5 which is also about revenge so it tickles that part of my brain um i'll just leave it at there it just it's a movie i really loved it spoke to two like base interests of mine when it comes to fiction and literature um so it was gonna probably be an easy win for me anyways but i was still amazed by how much i did enjoy it I definitely recommend this one to fans of A Song of Ice and Fire. I think if you're into that that combination of of visceral violence and the kind of the deconstruction of chivalry and the the mystic imagery and wild metaphysics kind of on the fringes, this has that exact cocktail combination. I like Robert Eggers a lot because I all of his movies have this element where they have this element of camp despite mm-hmm. being focused on really serious grim topics. Uh, he, his first movie was The Witch or The Vivitch, if you pronounce it like it's spelled with the old timey W that looks like two V's. And then The Lighthouse with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, which is probably my favorite of his so far. And I like because he has his he tends to focus on characters who have I mean, he likes he likes old timey dialects and he likes he likes very kind of florid, specific, overwritten dialogue. But then he uses that to kind of poke fun at the characters and their pretensions and how those pretensions contrast with the kind of more base impulses that actually drive them when it comes down to it. Like you saw that in The Witch with the extreme version of Christianity that the main family was practicing. The Lighthouse, there was obvious religious echoes and echoes of Prometheus and and Greek mythology in terms of how they were relating to the Lighthouse itself. And then in this one, it's an attraction to a very specific masculine code when it comes to violence and revenge and identity and how that kind of dictates your actions to the point of absurdity. And that's, I really like the Northman in terms of the tone that on one hand, it was very grim and realistic and unsparing and awful. And on the other hand, it was, it was kind of constantly poking fun at all the characters and how thoroughly self-created these problems are and how easy, how easy it would be to make different decisions and the decisions they're making and how there is there's a certain self-contained glory in them doing what they're doing but it's so it's it's an attraction to death is what ends up being a lot of the focus of the movie this kind of almost erotic attraction to death in itself that prevents you from being able to live and i think it was yeah it was a 
a really effective incarnation of that and just a lot of a lot of burly men grunting and yelling i'll always show up for that yeah i love burly men grunting and yelling favorite favorite part always a highlight one more thing i'll mention that i know you love as well but that i really enjoyed much more than i thought i would was Andor. And even putting aside the the kind of the thrust of, of the politics of it, what it was kind of saying about the Empire, which people have, have written about really well, and it's kind of placed in, in Star Wars meta discourse, I think I'm going to enjoy coming back to it, and I think it'll hold up because it, it is just a solid show. It's self-contained. It runs on its own internal logic. And watching it really reminded me of what I love about TV in general, that it has this this ruthless sense of pacing and that we can't waste any time. We have this, you have to, we, have to have, we have to have a plot that's, just complicated enough to make you keep up with it, but not so complicated that you can't figure out what's happening. And we have our well-established character motivations, and we're going to keep, they're going to keep coming into conflict in new ways. Every episode is going to have your motivation coming into conflict in a new way. And so now the characters have to scramble and you have to scramble. It was, it's really precisely edited. Like every time you have a, a new emotion or a new sensation, we're going to get a new cut to what's happening. It's a funny show in a really kind of dry, situational way, in a way that doesn't feel forced, and there's not the one funny character. So as, as fresh as it was, it also just reminded me of a lot of kind of old-school dramatic basics and the bones of good television. And the way that I love about, uh, about the older Star Trek shows, that was just made an art out of just crafting the episode. That's something I always love. Yeah, no, this is right up there with Better Call Saul is my favorite television show of the year. Um, I covered it over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, so you can get way more in depth there. But really quickly, um, as you mentioned, the politics are a huge point of discussion. I will just say Tony Gilroy did his historical homework on revolutions and what empire looks like. The reason we're seeing all sorts of analysis or maybe hot takes about how leftist or Marxist or socialist this work might be, it's mostly just because the historical details are right. This is what oppression looks like, and these are the to <clears throat> the tools available to people who are being oppressed, what ways they can resist, whether it's you know a symbolic resistance by showing up at a ritual ceremony, whether it's actual material resistance like you know, robbing a bank or, you know, blowing something up. Um, it kind of runs the entire gamut and it kind of has those philosophical conversations along the way. Um, it has characters like Stellan Skarsgård there so he can orate for a while to give some balance to kind of the nitty gritty what's happening with Cassian Andor in this setting or that setting uh, with this plot. And it's just expertly paced is something that you really got at where the show kind of builds to climaxes every three or four episodes, but it does a good job of kind of ramping it up. So climax number two feels bigger than climax number one did until it really blows up in the final climax and the finale of the season that kind of pulls together character and setting into one big set piece. And I also want to shout out Nicholas Brittell, who does the score here. Um, he... Uh, score Secession, which is another show the hosts of Not A Cast really love. Um, and it kind of runs the gamut because there's songs like Niamos, which is a diegetic in-universe piece of music that they listen to at the clubs in the Star Wars world. Um, and, you know, he made music that sounds like what music those people would listen to. But then he has very contemplative pieces when it's like focusing on Mon Mothma's character. Um, there are pieces in there that reminds me of like late 60s Pink Floyd albums when it would be like music borderline borderline just sounds combined with each other and not even necessarily tonal or melodic in any way but um, it's very evocative it's very minimalist um, there aren't a lot of like 16th and 
eighth notes that kind of define John Williams score. It's a lot more like whole notes or whole notes held for a lot longer. It's just an amazing addition to the Star Wars soundscape, which is something to say, given what John Williams did to define that soundscape. Um, it made Star Wars look and sound cool again. When you see a TIE fighter in Andor, it's like, oh shit, it's a TIE fighter. It's not like a jobber one of five million CGI specs that you saw in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, it made everything that makes the Star Wars universe cool to us feel real again. Feel like, oh shit, this has value and it's not just there for some video game antics to come. So there's a couple things uh, we didn't get to mention or talk about in full. I just want to say, hey, I really like these things. Uh, musically, uh, my th three favorite albums of the year were by Mitski, Arcade Fire, and Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, if you're looking for some tracks, I would say uh, Love Me More and Should Have Been Me by Mitski off her newest album. Uh, Arcade Fire, I really love uh, Lookout Kid. And then uh, with CRJ, uh, Beach House. And listen to all of Beach House because it takes a turn near the end. Um, so you might be a little bit shocked where the lyrics go with that one. I'll also say the scores or soundtracks to both Andor and House of the Dragon were things I played quite a bit. Um, Ramin Jawadi is back and great again. Um, and then we just talked about Nicholas Bertel and Andor. Um, some other movies, just really quick, I thought Everything Everywhere All at Once was a really solid blockbuster movie. I'm not going to say anything else about that, given the discourse that was online today. <laughs> and my one, my one lament is I didn't get to see as much animation as I usually do. I'm kind of an animation nut. I like to make sure I keep watching animated movies. I didn't see a ton, but I did really enjoy the Chippendale Rescue Rangers uh, movie that came out in around March or April. Um, people call it the spiritual successor to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I don't think that's true because Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a cinematic masterpiece. Um, the way they created that with the old school shooting on film and then hand drawing it and making sure things are in frame and nothing's being jumpy or skippy and everything interacts and sight lines are good. We're not going to have anything like Roger Rabbit again, but anyone who's roughly my age, 38, you can skew a little bit younger, a little bit older, but a lot of the animation that the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie moves through kind of touches on animation of our lifetime. So it's very enjoyable to see Chippendale interact with, say, Randy Marsh from South Park. Um, so there's a lot of little fun things. I wouldn't call it a great movie, but if you're kind of an animation nerd, I think you'll get something out of it. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, just something else mentioned in passing, ben uh, Benediction, which is the new movie about uh, Siegfried Sassoon, who was a great poet who fought in World War I, but I also just love him because his name Siegfried Sassoon. It just sounds like a Dr. Seuss character. Um, mm -hmm. Really good. It was, it's by the British director Terence Davies, who is this very uh, uh, quiet, uh, gay, snobby man who I love. He made a whole documentary about his about the city of Liverpool, where he's from, and he devotes like 10 minutes in the middle of it to hating on the Beatles because he's such like a, a square, old-fashioned man and likes classical music and hates that Liverpool is only known for the Beatles. He's very funny. He's like if Mr. Burns was British and harmless. <laughs> like if, if Mr. Burns lived a quiet, sad, gay life. That's, that's Terrence Davies. But he makes really, really dreamy, poetic, sad movies. Benediction is on Hulu. I definitely uh, uh, recommend check checking that out. And there are there are things there are there was a great year for movies, and uh, I haven't caught up on a lot of them. Some that we uh, mentioned already, but I still I want to see Tar, the one with Kate Blanchett, sounds really interesting. Another long one I'd have to block out a couple nights for. Um, I want to see the new Spielberg, The Fablemans, about his his more autobiographical one about his teenage life, and of course 
I'm going to do my patriotic duty, sign up for Surface and go see the new Avatar. I'll be doing that when it comes out in a few days. It's I'm like I'm like I have a, I have a kind of a bemused fondness for the first one in that I think it is is genuinely beautiful and its heart is in the right place, but also it feels like it was written by a 6-year-old. So I'm like I'm like good job James Cameron in a gold star on the fridge kind of way. And I, I imagine I'm going to feel that way about the second one as well. As with the first one, in theaters and 3D, I think it's the only way to see it. So I will enjoy that. Yeah, I will be seeing Avatar 2 The Way of Water as soon as I can, or maybe not as soon as I can, but very soon. I am excited to return to Pandora. A lot of that is because I really just like James Cameron. Me too. A lot of his movies have been not only some of my favorite movies, whether it's the Terminator movies or True Lies, or um, I actually really love Titanic. Me too. Um, Titanic rules. If anyone is still on the Titanic is bad train, you need to have gotten off a long time ago. That movie rocks. And it's not just that his work is super important to me, but his work is super influential on other works that are important to me, uh, namely Hideo Kojima's and his video games with Metal Gear Solid and Death Stranding. Um, You can see the Cameron influence all over those things. Um, So a lot of the things that Jim uh, Jimmy introduced into the world. um, I also want to mention Aliens as another favorite Jim Cameron movie of mine. That's probably my favorite. That's one of the the horror sequence in Aliens when the Marines are descending into the, the colony and gradually realizing what they're walking into might be my favorite suspense sequence ever so mm-hmm. he gets eternal lifetime points for me for that yeah so uh never cut out count out touchdown gym or whatever the <laughs> phrase is so um i'm excited to see it and at least be part of the discourse and the community of people all reacting to it at one time agreed agreed and so we'll that'll be our, our favorite movie of 2023 when we come back next year we'll, <laughs> we'll just be talking about avatar the wave water and as many people have pointed out it is hilarious that we have this guy who took forever to create his next work of art and its acronym is literally twow like <laughs> that's that's just the gods making fun of us at that point so but i think that is gonna wrap us up for our 2022 wrap-up episode uh thank you so much as always for listening if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice we always appreciate that it helps people find us you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash notacast asoiif where our patrons get early access exclusive episodes ex- access to the not a slack and a bunch more benefits you can follow us on twitter at notacast asoiif or shoot us an email at notacast asoiif at gmail.com and you can find me at poor quentin on twitter and I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Uh, we've returned to covering The Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Though when this episode drops, we might have one more special and or episode for you. So uh, just check that out if you enjoyed our and or talk, and or talk earlier this episode. And my, uh, most, my most recent Lord of the Rings episode covering Book 5, Chapter 9, The Last Debate, is up for all of our $5 and above patrons. Uh, by the time this episode airs, my next Star Wars episode is going to be up as well. My uh, fourth episode on Revenge of the Sith. In terms of A Song of Ice and Fire, we're, uh, we're wrapping up A Storm of Swords Davos 4, and then we're moving on, of course, to A Storm of Swords uh, Jamie 5, the great Heron Hall bathtub chapter. A classic. That's going to be a, a great time, and we're going to be rolling right into 2023. So uh, thank you so much for listening, and we're going to bring you uh, so many great episodes in the new year to come. <laughs>